0: especially when you're a Flemish guy in Brussels and you go to all the bars in the Vlaamse Steeleweg. And it's just like, you know, when, when I was eight years younger and I was in between my ex-girlfriend and my wife and I was living like a frivolous life, or have you seen that? <laughs> when I did you're some- enjoying yourself. Yeah, when I did something like in one bar or uh, I was talking to someone and it's like a small village and you know, I came to the other one and everybody.
1: I'm Owen Walsh, and this is the Brussels Beer City podcast, The Diaspora Season. If part one of this series on Irish bars was very much in my comfort zone, this time around we're stepping only marginally outside of it by talking about Brussels' Flemish bars, which, yes, are definitely a thing and are very much deserving of the Diaspora Season treatment. I hope you enjoy the episode. Simon Steverlink is already at Café Indenhemel when I get there, sitting at a wooden table between a squat stove and the café's big plate glass window.
0: Okay, so I'm Simon Steverlink. I was born in, uh, in Limburg. and in, Actually, I'm from Haaland, so that's really like on the border of, of Limburg.
1: Indenhemel is in the northwestern Brussels district of Ganshorn, and Steverlink has been coming here on and off since he moved in nearby five years ago. First, with his newborn daughter in her buggy, and later, after buying a few rounds to ingratiate himself with the regulars by himself.
0: Some people that I know in Brussels, they said, ah, you live in Kansel now, and like the welcoming or the the present, like when you buy a house, they gave me, uh, but I I still haven't got it yet, (laughs) but they promised me uh, uh, like a coupon to go to eat here some uh, spaghetti, because yeah, "Yeah, you have to eat spaghetti in the name, It's, it's the best place. And so when we just arrived here, my, my daughter was born and, and we, we, we would take her in the carriage in here in winter and, and, and yeah, it lasted for two or three months. And then I didn't come back for, I think, one year or two years. Mm. So she was a little bit older because I didn't know the guys at the bar. And then yeah, I just started coming and, you know, if, if, you, if you go somewhere and, and you buy some beers to the people and, and, and be friendly, they would accept you or not.
1: He's a regular himself now joining the cafe's Wednesday evening bike rides and watching the occasional Anderlecht League match at the weekend. It's a small place in Den Hamel, just a one-room bar and Spartan toilet cubicles out the back. There's space for a dozen or so seated drinkers across some worn green leather blankets and high stools. In the bar, there's the aforementioned black gas stove, and on the walls are a dartboard, a promotional skateboard from local singer Zwangaragi, a chalkboard listing beers for sale and football paraphernalia from Brussels clubs, Hrvdm and Union Saint-Gélois. Den which translates as In Heaven, is on a residential street across the road from the rusting green gates of Ganshorn's decommissioned municipal cemetery. On a dark night and with the curtains closed, without the black and white Estaminet beer sign hanging above the entrance, you wouldn't think it was a bar at all. But it's exactly this modest, scruffy charm that Staverlink likes about in Den
0: what do we call it, like a bruine kroeg in Dutch. Yeah. That's, what attra- that's what attracts me in bars. And when I was a kid, I went to Hasselt to school for three years or something. And then I went to Diest, I think I was 15 or 16 years old. And we had this bar, it was called the Max. Okay. Yeah. And so it, it was actually a bar like this, you know, but yeah. it was like only the, 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 the youth came there. You know, I think what I'm looking for and what you find in these kind of bars, it's, it's the, the coziness, but the thing I like in Brussels also, like you have these bars and I can walk, I, I know I can walk in this bar and I know people and, and they will talk to me and I will have a an evening full of talks or whatever, but if I want...
1: And the chat that Staverlink mentions is conducted in Dutch, not exclusively, but predominantly, both by the barmen and the beer drinkers. And the value of that to Staverlink is not to be diminished.
0: I think it's it's something about like, Flemish people, speaking people, like wherever they are, if they're in, in Diest or Hasselt or in Brussels, you know, they're like all the same and you really feel a connection immediately. Uh.
1: Indenhemel is one of the few places in this corner of Brussels that's guaranteed to offer that possibility of connection. But when he first moved to the big, big city, as he calls it, in his mid-twenties, before marriage, children, and suburbia, like most Dutch-speaking new arrivals, he found that connection elsewhere. More specifically, in downtown Brussels' Dansartwick neighbourhood, that hosts the densest concentration of Flemish bars in the city. Some, like the Walvis or Barbaton, are modern. Others, like the Daringman Man Lecoque or the Roscam, are more time-worn. The Martin, right at the neighborhood's geographical centre on the outer Grandmarkt Square, is a bit of both. But what connects all these bars, apart from their geographical proximity, is the dominant language spoken behind and in front of the Ntoog. And that's Dutch. For almost 40 years, the small corner of central Brussels, which comprises the Antoine d'Ansartstraat, the Vlaamse Steenweg, which translates as the Flemish carriageway, and the perpendicular streets that crisscross them, with its bars and shops and cultural lodestones, has been a linguistic enclave for the city's Dutch-speaking diaspora. But the forces that made this neighbourhood a creative centre of Flemish life in Brussels look to be waning. And the Densartwakes grip on Brussels' Dutch-speaking imagination might itself be loosening. Now, Patently ludicrous, I can already hear you scream, to treat Brussels, Flemish and Dutch-speaking residents the same as its Italian, North African or Turkish communities. And you might be right. I mean, Brussels and Flanders are, of course, both Belgian, after all. And Brussels is, still just about, the seat of Flanders' regional parliament. For centuries, Brusselaar spoke a Brabantian dialect of Dutch. And in his 1992 book Arm Brüssel, Brussels-born author Geert van issendal whose own parents came from Flanders, said that until the French Revolution, Brussels was just as Dutch-speaking a city as Amsterdam or Utrecht. But, and there is a but, Belgian independence in 1830 and a century of Francophone elite-driven policies of Frenchification, the Flemish would call verfransing, meant that by 1947 three quarters of the city's population said they mostly or only spoke French. Brussels, was now a Dutch-speaking city, van Isstendal wrote, with a French crust on top. Now, despite elite-driven efforts to exclude Dutch from daily life, from schools, hospitals and on the street, there was an influx of what you might call proto Gastarbeiter, rural Flemish labourers, migrating to Brussels. That meant that there were still working-class Dutch-speaking neighbourhoods in Molenbeek, Anderlecht, Schaerbeek, and parts of central Brussels between the Canal and the Grand Boulevard. A recent documentary by Brussels Migration Museum and filmmaker Peter Verlinda is full of stories of these Flemish families who've moved to Brussels for work and for a better life, all the way as far back as the mid 1800s. Here's a clip of one of them, wherein the person speaking talks a little bit about their family and how they moved to Brussels and that experience in the very beginning.
2: Even in the church, that we don't know, but in 1920. Komen naar Brussels, op zoek naar een betere leefsituatie? Dat denken we.
1: Post-World War II social mobility and deindustrialisation helped scatter these communities, fragment them, and push them outwards to Brussels' more salubrious suburbs, to places like Hanshorn and bars like Indenhemel. Something eagle-eared listeners might have noticed so far is that I'm using Flemish and Dutch-speaking Brusselaire more or less interchangeably. It's complicated to know what exactly to call this cohort of Brussels residents. Language and identity remain sensitive issues in Brussels, and describing a bar or a neighbourhood as having a Flemish character brings with it all sorts of thorny socio-cultural and political baggage. The terms Vlaming (Flemish) and Nederlandstalige Brusselaar (Dutch-speaking Brussels resident) are not synonymous. You can assume a Vlaming in Brussels is Dutch-speaking, but a Dutch-speaking Brusselaar would not necessarily see themselves as Flemish. Even for someone like me, resident in Brussels for 14 years, Dutch-speaking more or less to a good enough level, and married to somebody born in Flanders, negotiating these sometimes conflicting identities can be a bit of a challenge. Just to give you an example, witness these exchanges with Hans van de Kandelare, who I met at the Belge. Van de Candelaar is a historian, research journalist and writer, whose current focus is on what he calls hyper-diverse Brussels. We had a wide-ranging conversation at the Royal Belge about diversity in Brussels, but we also briefly did get into personal identities as well. I'm going to leave them in their original Dutch, just to give you a sense of how our conversation started and how we came to agree on the terms by which we would discuss the subject at hand. I'm have to speak as Niet als Vlaming, maar als mensen die vanuit ergens anders naar Brussel is gekomen. Maar ik ben wel
2: Brusselaar. Ja, ja, oké, maar ik ben Brusselaar.
1: Dus ja, om om te beginnen. Een eerste vraag in het Engels, dan kunnen we verschrijven in het Nederlands. Uh, Hans, thanks for coming on the show. Maybe you can introduce yourself.
2: Wie ik ben. Ik weet het niet meer op de duur wie ik ben. (laughs) Ik ben Brusselaar. In Brussel noem ik mij Nederlandstalige Brusselaar. Ja. In Vlaanderen noem ik mij nooit Vlaming, maar wel Brusselaar.
1: Anyway, with that slight, but what I felt was maybe some necessary diversion and context, let's get back into the discussion of how the Dansartweek came to be the Dansartweek, and how in the 1970s and 1980s, a new generation of Flemish people started moving into the neighbourhood young people still kept coming from Flanders to the big city and to its insalubrious city centre. At the end of the 1970s and early 80s, it wasn't factory workers or small tradesmen, but writers, musicians and artists who found their way to the partly abandoned downtown Brussels, attracted by cheap rent, lively cafes and a rough-edged reputation of the Dansartwick. At that time, local officials, local tourism officials, we were recommending tourists avoid this corner of Brussels altogether which was, after all, only 5 minutes by walk from the Grand Place. In an article for Brussels' Dutch language newspaper Bruz, the owner of the Dansartstraat Larchie Duke Jazz Bar recalled it as a place where there was a murder a day. The nearby Sint-Chorix Plain, where I met Hans van de Candelaere at the de belge Café, had a similar rough reputation but though it's scarcely 100 meters from Latijuke in the start of the Den and it experienced its own wave of gentrification sint horix fell outside the borders of this emerging Dutch-speaking enclave why was this well as Hans van der Kendelaar says some of this was chance
2: Pure historis <laughs> dat I weet ik niet ik denk dat je dan moet afdalen naar de jaren 90 eerste helft van de jaren 90
1: but to me, there were three decisive reasons why this development took the form that it did. Culture, couture and cafés. The cafés were there first, rowdy establishments with dodgy reputations that rubbed shoulders with pay-by-the-hour hotels next door. Places like Het Capiteintje, Le Pâne Royale, L'Archiduc and Inden Congo. Journalist, film director and long-term dance artwick resident Mark Didden, who was born in Limburg, writes wistfully in his book Over Brussel about witnessing in the latter three regulars attack a man dressed as Santa Claus for not buying his round. Didden and his Flemish contemporaries, playwright Josse de Pau, singers Arno Hinchens and Johan Verminne, dancer Anna-Therese de Kirschmacher and others, were often in or near the neighbourhood for work. By the early 1980s, the Börsschauberg, a former dance hall next to Café Lecoq on Rue Orts, had emerged as an important multidisciplinary art centre. The Caves, the Royal Flemish Theatre, was a short walk away, and on the outer Grand Markt, a former glassware showroom, gutted by multiple fires and with bats roosted in the rafters, was bought by the government and converted into what became the Markte, with a café on the ground floor and performance spaces above. It was here, for example, where de Kersmacher made her debut, and across the square at Le Pan Royal, where many of these figures would drink. De Pau captured the slightly manic atmosphere of this scene's early years in his essay Odin and Stam Café, about Café Le Coq its stinking toilets and lingering aroma of bleach, Bruna, the Belgo-Italian landlady, the bodybuilders huffing away in the room above the bar, landlord jean pierre chanson records, the vagrants, widows, punks, painters, schoolgirls, mercenaries and gigolos who comprised the Cox clientele, the clean ashtrays and the well-poured pinches. In the wake of these artists came the fashionistas. Sonia Noel, an early supporter of the Antwerp 6 fashion designers, opened her boutique Stale near l'archiduc, in 1984. By the early 1990s others had followed and the sneering term Danzart Flaming had come to denote a particular type of bourgeois Flemish person who came in their expensive cars to spend money in these boutiques. People were beginning to move into the area as well, taking up residence in cheap former industrial buildings. One of these was Eva Wilson's, director of the Markt.
3: I'm Eva, I'm from Brussels. I was born, born in Brussels. Uh, almost fifty years ago, uh, so I witnessed, yeah, the history of of these centres.
1: And though it was clear a Flemish scene was emerging, and even as some of the baudier cafes frequented by Diden and Co were closing, the Dansartwijk was still a rough part of town.
3: I lived here in the nineties. It was super rough. It was uh, there was, were, a few bars, uh, a, a few night shops, but, mm. uh, uh, yeah a lot of empty buildings, a lot of um, dark streets and dark nights. And yeah, uh, yeah, it it was a rough neighborhood. And then, yeah.
1: The cultural center and cafe, now with an extended terrace out front, has remained a central meeting point for Flemish people living inside and outside Brussels.
3: I do feel sometimes we are the uh, village square. Um, of brussels because people do come here just hang out um to 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 have somebody to talk to 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 relax to to feel a bit in a safe space uh, to to interact Uh, so i do feel the need of community Mm. a lot a lot of people coming from flanders also know us Mm. um so we are in the center of brussels we are related to the people that live close by um, but we are also very well-known by all the Flemish-speaking people, I think, in Brussels. They come here to see expositions or uh, the sports classes, They're really, it's not only the people from, from the next street that come here, it's, it's uh, a bit everybody.
1: Downstairs in the café, its current operator, Joris Lens proves her point.
4: The weird thing is that of of the few times that i ever been to Brussels, when I was like 17 or something and I went out, I was at the Marikta. I realized when I restarted here, I was like, ah, but actually, yeah, yeah. um, That was really almost my first connection to Brussels. Um,
1: Lentz would soon discover the rest of Brussels when he opened the AUB SVP restaurant in 2013.
4: We also worked for a lot of uh, Flemish um, institutions like Burg, KWS, uh, the bibliotheek And at some point there was a tender for the Markten yeah. that was for looking for a new um, yeah, owner or, or uh, guy or girl to run it. Yeah.
1: Um, the Markten didn't just offer the chance for Lens to operate out of a larger space in a beautiful building. The cafe is big and bright and shiny and bats hanging from the ceilings are a distant memory. It also put the ideas he developed at IUBSVPA, sustainability, social engagement, at the epicenter of a Dutch-speaking ecosystem.
4: So if you ask, uh, how do you think uh, it is to have a, a business here? For me, it's great that it's a bit Dutch-minded, not that for me it's, it's essential, but it's yeah. easy because I just my French is horrible. Um, so if you do something in Brussels and Horeca and you can only speak Dutch mainly, then this is... Uh well, that's
1: a perfect.
0: That's the, so
1: Both Lens in the Café and Wilson's upstairs in the Cultural Centre emphasise that while the majority of their customers are Dutch-speaking, they are open to everybody, and in particular the low-income communities that live in the neighbourhoods around the dense outbreak.
4: I mean, this, the, the focus here is Dutch, but we help everyone just in the language that they that they want to be clear about it. Um.
1: Try as he might, or even if he didn't want to, Lenz can't quite get away from the neighborhood's reputation because, well, as he says, it exists. It's a reality.
4: So, and yes, of course it exists, because especially here in the mighty you also often see like famous actors or people that play in theater that are also often here. I don't know if that's so often in other places as it is. As yeah. it is here. Yeah.
1: Now, market might get the actors, but Café Roskam, just around the corner on the Vlamse Steinweg, is more associated with musicians, thanks in part for its reputation for live jazz. Singer Arno Hinchens, who goes by the name Arno on stage, lived nearby and was a regular until his death in April 2022. He would, the Roskam's owner, Ruud van Bukhove, told local media, drop in several times a week for a quiet hello and a drink, keeping largely to himself. The Roscam itself is recognizable by the blue tiles neon wordmark and black and white horse logo on its facade. Inside, it looks not unlike Inden Hamel in Ganshorn, with red instead of green banquettes and similar Spartan decoration, though it's much larger and has a small stage in the back for the gigs. It's busier too, at least on the day I arrive in to interview one of its regulars, Bazaar Trottoir tour guide Valerie de Catelaire. De Catelaire has been coming to the Roscam almost since she arrived in Brussels 20 years ago after running away from her hometown in West Flanders.
5: Uh, I'm from Kortrijk. it's yeah. a place in the west, west of Flanders, yeah. and I ran away. <laughs> you ran
3: away.
1: <laughs>
5: yeah. I, I wanted to live in a bigger city, I want to live in a city where it's uh, much more multicultural, where uh, it's more city-like. Uh, yeah. where
1: you have, uh... Originally a regular at the nearby Monk on Rue Saint-Catherine, it was the Roskam that became her Brussels stamp Café.
5: I think it's a, it's a bar where you can go in at any time, and that you always know somebody. Often it's a person behind the bar, <laughs> but not always. Can be a lot of people in the bar as well, and you don't need to meet with somebody. Uh, like often after a tour, if I want to have a drink, I just uh, step into some bars and I see okay, do I see somebody that I know, and then uh, I can ask, okay, it's okay if I sit with you or have a drink with you, or you just ask, you want to have beer? And so your evening can, uh, can start, and for me that's a bit the stump Café where you don't need to... You can go in there when you want and always see somebody that you know.
1: De Quételaire doesn't live in the neighbourhood anymore, having moved just across the canal to the bottom of the Kansas Stainwick. But she's close enough to still be able to enjoy the neighborhood's attractions, linguistic, and otherwise,
3: I
5: think the, the language is one thing, um, but also the um, the atmosphere. Like for me, Brussels is a bit anarchistic and a bit uh, um, quirky. In Dutch, we say "madenukoff," uh, so um, you, you can just be who you are. It doesn't matter uh, how much you earn, uh, with what car you're driving, what clothes you're wearing. Uh, and like here, I feel it in this uh, this type of bars. I really it you can uh, come somewhere you can turn it around as well you can uh, like uh, there are a lot of bars it uh, seems calm and then two hours later you're dancing here and sing along with the music and this is all possible and this is a uh, uh, what i like and sometimes you can have like a day where you're not feeling well and just come in and say it's not my day or it doesn't happen that often but that's possible you can be really so, yeah, it's like your little village in the, the city and maybe that's my little kortrek here. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. No. This inner-city-village atmosphere evoked by the Ketelera is what seduced Simon staverlink too, or at least the younger version of himself, the one that reveled in its cafe-centered chaos when he arrived in Brussels for the first time. He too was a Roscam regular before moving on to nearby Café Merlot, where he's been drinking on and off for the past 14 years.
0: Came to Brussels. Uh, I went to the Roskam. I don't know. Do you know Waldo? I don't. No. Okay. So Waldo is the owner of the Melo. Okay. It used to be Waldo, Kato and Simon, mm-hmm. and Waldo worked in uh, in the Roskam. So I was always sitting there because I lived on the Vismarkt. And then uh, he said, Ah, we we bought this place. So we went with him, and then we got the soccer team there, which exists now 15 years, as long wow. as the as long as the bar exists. So I always liked it how cozy it was and. And you know everybody there in the streets. And, and when we played soccer, it was on Wednesday. And, and back in the days when I was in the late 20s, begin 30s, we stayed there until four or five o'clock in the morning, picked up some girls and then went home. And like these days are long gone now. And, and if I go there, I don't know maybe, I know maybe five or 6% of yeah. the people. And like the people behind the bar, they're like young guys that, that are working there and you don't have the same connection as you had. Yeah. But maybe the younger guys that are now there, clients, they might have it with the guys behind the bar. So it's like, how a do you new say a new
1: There's still the occasional cutting loose down on the Vlamps Systemic for Staverlink, But every time he goes back now, he finds Café Merlot a little different than when he left it. The crowd is younger, the barman too, and the connection just a little more tenuous than it was. De Quetelaire, too, has noticed a sea change in the den way, because some businesses turn their attention to the tourists who have, despite previous warnings from the tourism office, found their way there.
5: I don't go to the Monk a lot anymore because for me it became a bit more touristic. Yeah. And, like, my Flemish friends always go to the Monk because they know it from 20 years <laughs> back. And they say, oh, well, let's go to the Monk. Yeah. And, yeah, for me that's a, a, a bar where you go for to have a spaghetti or to be there uh, if you want to have, like, a beer with some, uh, with an aperitif or something, yeah. or during the day. But I like to go like Roscam. I like to go to Merlot, uh, Laboureur, That's that's a bit more French. Like the people behind the bar are only French-speaking, yeah. but it's like a nice, the uh, anarchistic vibe is there. Uh.
1: And she and Staverlinker onto something. I think a generational shift is underway, which is normal. People get older, and younger drinkers step in to replace them. Tourism-focused hospitality is encroaching too, with more chains and fewer independent venues. But there's something else happening too. A vibe shift, to use a a contemporary term, suggesting that Dansartwijk's time as the center of Brussels' pocket, Dutch-speaking universe might be ending. Not gentrification exactly, but blandification. Maybe this blandification is just the end stage of a dynamic initiated by those adventurous Flemish artists in the 1980s. Mark Didin, again in his book Over Brussels, captures his generation's anxiety about what's happening to the neighbourhood they had a hand in creating. Didin bemoans the arrival of copywriters and IT specialists and loft-living nouveau riche. The area has, he says, become pretentious, petty bourgeois and boring. The dance art flaming epithet is defanged, good now only as fuel for a satirical social media account and TV series. Part of this is being driven by rising rent and property prices. Here's former resident of the Densatwick, Eva Wilsons, again, talking about what this impact has been on a practical level, on a personal level for her.
3: Yeah, I saw people starting buying places, renovating places. It was cheap, so yeah, um, yeah people moved here, and it yeah, it's co- all the effects of gentrification, huh? So at the time, I paid like 500 euros for an apartment Mm -hmm. with two rooms and now I can't afford it anymore to live here.
1: Rising retail rents are also pushing out the independent boutiques that earn the area its fashionable reputation. The contested opening of a branch of Koss on the Densartstraat in 2018 presaged the arrival of a rash of international brands, including American vintage Ace Tate and Scotch & Soda. The cultural centres appear relatively unscathed. But the pandemic, the energy crisis, and the ambitions of private equity juiced Belgian hospitality chains have put the wakes cafes under pressure. In 2014, the Brune Krug Hit Kapitänche on Rue Saint Catherine was converted into a branch of the Bar des Amis pub chain. Opposite the Markten, Le Pound Royale is now a branch of the Belgian pizza chain Automat. On the adjacent Saint Catherine Square, family owned fish restaurants have made way for a single dish fast, casual places specialising in spaghetti bolognese, burgers and ramen. But the biggest upheaval came in the last week of April 2023, when Philip Jans sent an email out with the subject line, Café Monk is being kicked out. Jans was Monk's long-term leaseholder, and in the email announced the bar would see out its 10th birthday with a party on May 13th, and then close permanently. Jans' message prompted expressions of outrage, disbelief, from local politicians that another neighbourhood favourite was disappearing. An online petition against the closure secured over 4,000 supporters, and journalists were dispatched to interview customers enjoying their final plate of the Monk's signature spaghetti bolognese. Here's Jans talking to me by phone a couple of weeks after the announcement and just before that final birthday party. Yep. He says that the buyer did their very best to be a place where every Brusseler could feel at home. He also thinks that maybe because more and more places are disappearing, that the neighborhood saw Monk as a big loss. The proximate reason for Monk's closure was that the building's owner, the drinks distributor HLS, wanted to renovate. But Jan saw it as just another example of short-term, profit-focused thinking by breweries and large drinks businesses that own most of Belgium's cafes. Costs are rising and the margins that the breweries give bars like Monk are far too small to survive, Jan says, and these pressures combined with the infiltration of chain outlets has him convinced more bars in the Sartwick are likely to follow the Monk into oblivion. It is, he said in our conversation, a trend that's been going on for years. And maybe this is just gentrification devouring its children. Maybe the propulsive force of creative capital that drove the emergence of a Flemish dance outwake has simply exhausted itself. Maybe it's just the same old story that Hans van de Candelaar explains to me back at the Rue Belge, that has repeated itself throughout Brussels' history. Neighborhoods change.
2: Global, I think that uh, that's an essence to understand many Brussels begrijpen.
1: That's the essence to understanding many Brussels neighbourhoods. Who remembers, he says, that Keurigim and Anderlecht was 30 or 40 years ago mainly Flemish, Sicilian and Spanish. And it's none of those things anymore. Change can happen quickly, van de Candelar says. Brussels experiences significant population churn, always. And it will continue to do so as new Flemish Brusselaars arrive and older ones drift to the city's edges and back across the border into Flanders. Maybe there's just less need to these days for a distinct Flemish quarter at all. There are, Geert van Dal wrote in a later edition of his Iron Brussels*, new cracks in Brussels' old francophone crust, as the city's disparate language communities work to reconcile their differences. Maybe, like the Spanish, Italian and older Flemish communities mentioned by Hans van de Kandelhara, the Dancer Flamingen will just disperse into Brussels' outer boroughs in search of affordable real estate. And, like Simon Staverling did, find out there some leftover of the Dutch language communities that made the same migration a half century before. As someone who'd consider themselves an adoptive Dutch-speaking Brusselaire, I'm not so sure about all this. Sorry. Uh, pinch nasch believe. Der uh, pinchter 33. 33. Thank you. I'm sitting in my favourite spot at Café Le Coq, the window nook next to the entrance, on a warm early afternoon in July. It's the same place I was sitting when, after Lecoq reopened following a COVID-19 lockdown, I saw Mark Didden emerge from the toilets like a bear from hibernation. I remember him lumbering through the café, saluting the bar staff and exchanging goodbyes with some younger drinkers before heading out the door, walking stick gripped tightly in his left hand. Today, there are two large groups of Dutch-speaking drinkers who clearly share some mutual connection, animating the terrace outside. The bartender knows them too, peeling herself away from one group to come inside and serve me a pinche at the bar. The place resonates with a lively, discordant and throaty Dutch conversation. Generations change, but it looks, on this day at least, as if Brussels' Dutch speakers will continue to gravitate towards their Flemish village, their klein Kortrijk. And as I sit there, I'm reminded of something Joris Lenz said when we met at the market a few days previously.
4: It is nice that there is a place in Brussels where you can just speak Dutch when you want. But um, yeah, I think it's nice that you have that community feeling. And yes, of course it exists because...
1: I'm Owen Walsh, and this has been the Brussels Beer City Podcast. Thanks as usual to all of my guests this week for sitting down to talk about their love for Flemish buyers and to you guys for listening. Also, a quick word of thanks in particular to Peter Verlinden and Johan Le Mans from Foyer and the Migration Museum in Molenbeek for their permission to use that clip earlier. Do try and visit the museum if you haven't already. It really is very interesting. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you listen on, and I'll talk to you next time.